So when I tell people that I'm a synthetic biologist, uh, I usually get one of three responses. Uh, the first is perhaps one that many of you in the audience are experiencing right now. Uh, who does not know what synthetic biology is? Who has never heard the term? Yes! Okay, I love this. This is my favorite response, because I get to talk about synthetic biology uh, with people who haven't heard about it. People ask cool questions. Um, maybe if you're someone who's like more techy software, uh, I can tell you about how DNA is kind of like a software code, uh, and synthetic biologists like to program cells to do different things. Uh, this uh, code of A's, T's, C's, and G's is a program that tells cells to be fluorescent. Uh, you can also uh, program cells to make slightly more useful things, whether it's uh, insulin, uh, maybe something like the enzymes that break the, um, the stains on your clothes and laundry detergent, or even the vaccines that we all uh, uh, are letting us be here today in this room. Uh, Maybe if you're more of a designer or creative, uh, I can tell you about how synthetic biologists want to make new biological materials. Uh, this is artwork by uh, one of the Ginkgo Creative residents, Andrea Ling, uh, working with bioplastics and trying to uh, imagine new ways of materials and architecture that incorporates biological growth and decay as part of the process. Uh, maybe if you're more like a normal business person, normal job kind of guy or gal, uh, or otherwise, we, uh, I'll tell you, I work at a company, I work in biotech, uh, a company is called Ginkgo Bioworks. Uh, we kind of do genetic engineering as a service uh, for other companies. Uh, so if you are a company that wants to make insulin or enzymes for laundry detergent or vaccines or new materials, uh, give me a call. Uh, we can talk about how we can help you uh, do that better. Um, okay, the second type of response I get uh, is jokes. Uh, so, <laughs> this and many of my slides are, are actually made in, with mid-journey. Uh, and so, uh, to represent, uh, so synthetic biology, uh, oh, you mean like real biology, but made up. <laughs> uh, and I mean, kind of, right? Like, we're trying to make new biology do new things, we're making things with biology. It's, it's kind of made up, but it's, but it's real biology, too. Um, the other joke that I appreciate is like, oh, you're a synthetic biologist, so like you're a robot that does science experiments. And I'm like, well, it did feel like that when I was in grad school. Um, and, and these days, this is what Ginkgo looks like. We, we do use a lot of robots to do the experiments uh, that we do in synthetic biology, but that's also not quite right either, I think. But um, anyway, then the, the third response I get to synthetic biology, this often comes from people who are more familiar with the term, um, and they ask me questions or, or respond about synthetic biology as a brand. Uh, and that's something that I care a lot about because I think a lot about brand uh, for ginkgo, for synthetic biology, because I'm interested in design and communication and ethics and perception and, and how uh, all of these things work together out in the real world, which I think you can encapsulate under this word of brand. Uh, but some people say things like, ah, is synthetic biology like only a good brand, like it's just a rebrand of genetic engineering that lets you like get more investor money or uh, more grant money or something, or like rebrand GMOs. So that's like the skeptical take. <laughs> uh, and then the other, the other kind of brand concern people have is like, you're insane. Like, don't you know people hate synthetic things? <laughs> like, <laughs> every 
everyone wants to be natural. What's wrong with you? Why would you name your technology synthetic biology? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, you really should rebrand. And so I get a lot of people telling me to rebrand synthetic biology. And I mean, okay, so I'll, I'll, do, I'll talk about that side first. Uh, because I get it. I get it. Like, this is what you think of when you hear synthetic, right? Like, maybe you think about, like, artificial, things that are create, like, made with old biology, right? With the fossil fuels that we pull out of the ground and refine and poison the earth with, right? That's what synthetic means to people. Um, and nobody wants that. Everyone wants to be natural. Uh, everyone says they're natural from a brand point of view, regardless of how they're actually made. Um, so uh, I'm here to defend synthetic, uh, and I hope that by the end of my time here on stage, uh, you will join me uh, in an embrace of the, the word and the concept of synthetic. Uh, and, and yeah, apologies to, to the curators here. I'm rejecting uh, natural, uh, and I will go on a bit of a, of a rant against natural as a concept here uh, on the stage uh, in the natural intelligence panel uh, in, in favor of, of something synthetic. Um, and, and why I think synthetic matters uh, goes back to the actual definition of the word, right? Like synthetic is about bringing things together, uh, creating something greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, whereas nature, actually, like the actual definition of nature, like comes from a division, right? Like nature is what is outside of humans. It is not us, it is not culture, it is not technology. Right? Like when you have something natural is by definition away from humans um, and separate from humans. And so, and, and in fact, not just separate, but actually like below us, right? So like when nature was invented as a concept outside of nature, it was because we as humans had like dominion over nature. We were meant to control it, to dominate it, uh, in order for us to thrive as humans separate and above from it. Um, and, and I think that that sucks. <laughs> uh, and I think that you see as a result, like in our society, uh, ways that we use nature and natural in really sort of poisonous ways um, and ways that are quite negative. Um, and so because our, we've done actually a pretty good job <laughs> with the industrialized uh, uh, way of, of interacting with nature and controlling it, uh, now, in fact, like the kind of uh, the threat doesn't come from nature anymore. It actually does come from synthetics, from the things that, that we've made that have poisoned our environment. And therefore, like natural, again, as a brand, comes in to save us by excluding everything, right? It's this now we have to go through these rituals of purification. Uh, we have to search and search for the thing that is actually going to purify us uh, and, and save us from the things that are out there that are poisoning us. That's what natural products, cosmetics, this is what this world looks like. Much worse um, is also how natural is used as a tool of social dominance and social control. Um, so I, I really recommend these books by Angela Saini um, that help uh, that talk about the ways that science and, and our ideas about nature have been used as these tools of oppression. Uh, because science um, and, and, and these kinds of ideas that we have about what is natural or not natural have been used to justify the kinds of social hierarchies and dominance that are come from colonialism, white supremacy, patriarchy, right? So think about... Uh, 
ideas about the natural role of women in society, uh, the natural gender binary, or, or sort of heterosexual monogamy as a natural thing that we have to be doing. Uh, think about the natural differences between populations that live in different parts of the world and the way that, that <laughs> racists uh, keep insisting on these kinds of natural biological differences and the ways that these facts, <laughs> facts um, are used uh, as, as, as this kind of tool for oppression and dominance and domination. Um, I think that this division that we've also created between nature and technology also gives us a really, really like atrophied <laughs> imagination of what technology can be, right? Because it has to be something that is high-tech. <laughs> uh, it has to be something that is not natural, maybe not slimy, uh, not feminine, uh, not uh, the, many of these kinds of things that we associate more with nature. We have to kind of maintain that distinction um, in our technology. And so we end up with uh, what actually, I have a good quote here in my notes, I'll make sure I can read it, I didn't put it in the slide. Um, so Ur Ursula Le Guin, the science fiction writer, she actually has gone on a rant <laughs> about this and she uh, has a really beautiful little essay about this because her work was often criticized as not being hard sci-fi because she didn't really always talk about like the, the technical details of the, the alien societies. And she's like, that's bullshit because every, every way that we interact, every interface that we have with the material world is actually technology. And that's what her books are about, right? The ways that the, these alien societies all interact, that's also technology. Um, we just sort of don't think of it that way. But as a, as a result of that way, the idea of what we have, what technology is, uh, it means like our most sort of like high-tech visions for the future uh, are our rejection of our physical reality, right? Uh, we want to like eliminate the body um, and create new kinds of worlds uh, that can replicate, first of all, like the, the dominant structure and social control. And even in a world where there is no, like that you can, make more and more digital land, we still have to create scarcity in order to continue to enforce that kind of structure uh, and, and dominant structure. Um, so let's not do that. That sucks. Um, <laughs> so I think it's time for a very different kind of technology uh, and a new kind of synthesis. Uh, so I don't want the metaverse. Uh, I want the meatverse. Uh, so I want uh, a technology that sort of revels uh, in the slime, in the fleshy, uh, in, in the world and in our interface with technology and nature. Uh, this is a mid-journey prompt for society uh, if we uh, united nature and technology. Um, and, and I think that that's really important for us to do because again, like our technology, these things that we, we define as technological are so pathetic compared to what biology can do, right? Like, you saw that, that slug, like, swimming, right? Like, imagine trying to create a robot that could do that. Like, what would it take to do, you know? Like, I, eh, anyway, it's bad. Computers, like, compared to, like, that four billion years of evolution um, and what biology can do, um, 
is nothing. So like, let's, let's celebrate and, and uh, let's try to uh, think about, again, like how might we use these kinds of biological things? How can we create a kind of technology where we can build beautiful structures that are very large or very, very, very small uh, without uh, filling the world with garbage and pollution, uh, but, but with uh, things that actually even pull carbon out of the atmosphere? Uh, um, and I think... Uh, I had another quote in here. Okay, I have another quote, which is good. So this is from um, uh, Murray Bookchin, who is a theorist and a pioneer in the environmental movement. And so, again, like that, that division that we, that we have and we've inherited between nature and technology, that came from, too, like a, a time when, when we were sort of like... Uh, struggling to be able to survive, right? Like there was a scarcity that we were kind of uh, subject to the whims of nature, whether it is viruses and pathogens, uh, weather, like crops, all of these things that made our, our survival challenging. Um, and now though, like we face extinction not because of that, but because our own technology uh, has created a system where, where we are threatening our very survival. And so in, in this book that he wrote called Post-Scarcity Anarchism, he said, uh, man had to acquire the conditions of survival in order to live. And now we have to acquire the conditions of life in order to survive. Um, and so to me, that's the, that's the synthesis. Like, can we bring uh, life and technology, nature and technology, nature, technology, culture, politics, all together uh, to, to imagine a new kind of synthetic world? And so I'll leave you uh, with a few images uh, of how we might imagine that world. Again, these are, these are uh, AI-generated images, but they, they have basis in, in things that are happening in a contemporary world. Uh, and I can, I'm very happy to talk more about them in the Q&A or, or later if you can find me <laughs> during the lunch. Um, but so imagine now a world where uh, teenagers share their uh, DNA sequences, their plasmids, their, pro uh, their new cell programs, Programs with each other, um, new ways of interacting with biology and making new kinds of things. Uh, the way that kids maybe are sharing ways of doing uh, makeup on TikTok or, or other kinds of things, right? What if we had a new kind of culture uh, built around this kind of engagement and design with biology? Uh, what if your uh, local pharmacy uh, was actually uh, growing the medicines that you needed. Um, and you could pop down the corner store or you could get the medicine that you needed. Uh, you could also get seeds maybe that were tuned to your preferences and allergies. Uh, you had a local community that sort of was able to share and design the kinds of things that you needed that you could grow just in time. Um, maybe your living room uh, is appointed with beautiful mushroom furniture. Uh, that's sort of like Andrea's work a little bit, like you, things that can grow, uh, different kinds of materials you, that don't require fossil fuels. And maybe uh, biological programmers uh, will log into the wood wide web uh, and <laughs> uh, maybe they use the latest web tree protocols, uh, store their data in DNA, um, and grow new kinds of forests um, and, and new kinds of ways of, of interacting with the world. And so, uh, I believe that the future is synthetic uh, because uh, the future really depends on what we can imagine and make together. So I hope that you will all join me in that. Uh, that's my contact info, so please, uh, please do reach out, um, and thank you.
Thank you, Christina. Let's see it. And wonderful, we have time for a Q&A. So over here we have Monin. Moni has a stick microphone. She can carry it around into the room wherever someone pulls up a hand. If someone has a question, either general or to any of specific, we have the first one down here. And when you ask the question, just say your name, maybe an affiliation and end with the question mark. Thank you. Uh, I'm Nat, I'm, I work with IKEA. Um, I, I was just interested to ask, uh, maybe both of you, or Christina particularly, um, the, the idea of these uh, synthetic materials uh, um, in terms of uh, the environments we live in, because people often talk about, with the nature urban split, that uh -huh. nature's always soft and urban <laughs> means hard in every way and that we've seen like so many images these two days of like that kind of blade runner urbanness that is meant to be the future yeah. um and i live in a vestraham and a bit of malmo that's kind of being made now and it's just endless pouring of concrete basically mm. and i was just wondering if you what your thoughts were about how could modern cities become soft in a in a material way that is different uh, that's a great, I love that. Uh, we, uh, there's a joke uh, that my friends and I on, on Twitter have sort of embraced, uh, which is hashtag wood gang. Uh, the idea that like, yeah, when you look to, to nature, to biology uh, for, for building materials and, and for like structural things and, and long lasting things, like can't go wrong with wood. <laughs> right, like, uh, and there's some really beautiful architecture and, and work in sort of construction materials around, like, like uh, mass wood, tim like timber-framed buildings um, that can be quite large and, and and pretty impressive. So I think that there's a, there's movements in architecture to use more more um, renewable and natural materials like wood. Uh, there's some really beautiful work in in mushroom-based materials, whether it's for sort of insulation, um, like uh, sort of walls, like even even flooring, furniture. Like you can make things that are quite hard, brittle, soft. Right? Like there's a lot of flexibility um, and new kinds of sort of programmability in those materials. And so I think. Yeah, looking to sort of what a forest looks like, how a forest grows, maybe we can sort of pull and learn some of those things and bits and pieces together. Uh, but we'd love to talk more about <laughs> appointing place, uh, spaces with biological materials. Can I just yeah. add something? Of course. Uh, because that's the one thing I left out. <laughs> um, architects actually are looking at hydrogels as well as building materials. Um, and there's just one project I'm thinking of. Uh, I think uh, students, a bunch of students in Spain invented that balls of hydrogels that could be incorporated on the outside of buildings and on hot days the water would evaporate, cooling the building and when it rains they simply swell up again and can be used again and again. So I think that's one direction but I know there's more. That's cool. Yeah, super cool. Any other questions from the room? Over there. Yeah, we have one over here. Very pleasant with a little bit of breaks in between. <laughs> Needs to be moved. Hello, hello. My name is Esther, and um, I have a bunch of questions, but I will keep it short um, for Suzanne. Um, of all the things you said about slime, what stick with me was that uh, what do we need to know before we collect our own pet slime mold? 
<laughs> and <laughs> in case it's gonna turn into a monster, like who are we gonna call? <laughs> <laughs> me, call me. Yeah. I would like to see it. Um, but uh, uh, like I said, it just took a spoonful and yeah, I think it is okay because I know that not many people are interested uh, in libels. And obviously I, I can't kill it that way. Uh, I think you can actually buy slime molds. I, I've seen ads online. For some reason, they pop up um, uh, all the time. So that would probably be a safe thing to do. Uh, the, the problem is, or my problem was, that not the slime mold turned into a monster, but you have to keep them moist all the time. And then, of course, you get a regular mold that will just take over and kill everything. And I, I never figured out how to prevent that. So that's the real monster. <laughs> Thank you. We have one more question. Hi, my name is Matt Orlando. I have a restaurant in Copenhagen called Amass, but I've uh, been very interested in, in mycelium over the last few years, and I'm, I'm wondering in nature, where does slime and mycelium cross and how do they interact interact with each other in nature? Because I saw you post a picture of it actually eating the fruiting body of mycelium, but how do they interact maybe subterranean? Um, fungi actually are very slimy, like that, that's a necessity. So another major aspect of slime is that it's a great lubricant and for the slimes crawling, for us eating, every single bite has to pass safely through the body, right? And that the slime that lines the digestive tract helps it along. And fungi and the mycelium need that as well. In order to just penetrate the soil, you need that protection and you need that lubricant. Plant uh, roots use, use the same technique. They're slimy, they're coated in slime. Uh, so that's at least the, the interface that I can, I can think of. The fungi produce it themselves. Cool. Thank you. We have not any more time left for questions.